welcome to the November 28th edition of WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the refusal of a workers' compensation judge to strike an AME report without prejudice was not an appealable order. Here's what happened in the published case of Capital Builders Hardware versus the WCAB. After claiming an industrial injury, Robert Gayona was evaluated by Dr. Sherry Mendelson, the agreed medical examiner. She said that he should be evaluated by a chronic pain specialist and recommended Dr. Lawrence Miller. And Dr. Miller recommended 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week home care assistance. His report was sent to Dr. Mendelson, who accepted his opinion and recommended the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week care be provided. Capital Builders later objected to the admissibility of Dr. Miller's report and filed a petition to strike Dr. Mendelssohn's reports and remove her as the AME in psychiatry. The petition alleged that there was no agreement to provide Dr. Miller's report to the AME and that sending Dr. Miller's report to Dr. Mendelssohn was an improper ex parte communication. The work comp judge denied Capital Builders' petition to strike without prejudice. So, Capital Builders petitioned for removal or in the alternative for reconsideration. The appeals board found the decision to be an interlocutory procedural order that was not a final order and was therefore not the proper subject of a petition for reconsideration, which it dismissed. The board also found that Capital Builders did not show substantial prejudice or irreparable harm, and therefore denied the removal petition. The Court of Appeal issued a writ of review, however, and requested briefing on whether the Appeals Board's decision was indeed a final order that was reviewable by way of the writ of review. The Appeals Board responded by underscoring that the work comp judge's order was without prejudice, supporting the conclusion that it was an interim procedural decision. Capital Builders, on the other hand, contended that all decisions of the Appeals Board are subject to review by the appellate courts. The Court of Appeal agreed that the ruling was not a final order and not subject to appeal, and then dismissed the petition for writ of review in the published case. Since workers' compensation proceedings are to be expeditious, inexpensive, and without encumbrance of any character, only certain threshold issues, if finally determined, qualify as a final order. Examples are threshold issues such as whether the injury arises out of and in the course of employment, the territorial jurisdiction of the appeals board, the existence of an employment relationship, or a statute of limitations issue. The Appeals Board dismissed the petition for reconsideration and denied the petition for removal because these orders leave issues for future consideration. These orders also do not qualify as orders finally disposing of threshold issues in a workers' compensation practice. The underlying issue, that is, whether the communication was or was not ex parte and therefore prohibited by the Labor Code, will not avoid the necessity of further litigation. And in another case, the Court of Appeal ruled that courts have broad discretion to order restitution in criminal fraud cases. Here's what happened in the case of People v. Lopez. In 2009, 
2009, Chani Lopez was an employee of the San Diego Unified School District. He was sideswiped while driving a school district truck. He complained to co-workers that he was injured in the accident, but then declined any medical treatment and the matter was handled internally by the district. But two years later, June 2011, Lopez submitted a workers' compensation claim for pain in his neck and low back, alleging it was a result of the 2009 November accident. Lopez denied then having any injuries before November 2009 to his back and neck, to his evaluating physicians, and to investigators. But the claims administrator later found that he had submitted three workers' comp claims when he was working for the city of San Diego much earlier, with some corresponding to his current claims. A jury convicted Lopez of four counts of unlawfully making false and fraudulent statements to physicians and investigators in connection with his current workers' comp claim. Lopez was sentenced to probation for three years and 180 days in local custody in a work furlough program. In this appeal, Lopez challenges the court's order awarding over $30,000 in restitution to York Risk Services for expenses related to the workers' compensation claims. Lopez contended that the court erred in ordering restitution for medical expenses not affected by his failure to disclose prior claims, for expenses associated with the denied claim, and for expenses incurred to obtain his medical records. The Court of Appeal concluded that the court did not abuse its discretion in ordering restitution as a condition of probation, and it affirmed the order in the unpublished case. It said that the California Constitution gives crime victims a right to restitution and consequently requires a court to order convicted wrongdoers to pay restitution in every case in which a crime victim suffers a loss. Courts have interpreted penal code sections as limiting restitution awards to those losses arising out of the criminal activity that form the basis of the conviction. But in cases where probation is granted, the penal code provides the court with broader discretion. Restitution ordered under these penal code sections do not limit the restitution order to losses arising out of the conduct for which the defendant was convicted. Under certain circumstances, restitution has been found proper where the loss was caused by related conduct not resulting in the conviction. There is no requirement that the restitution order be limited to the exact amount of the loss in which the defendant is actually found culpable nor is there any requirement the order reflecting the amount of damages that might be recoverable in a civil action. In this case, the court granted Lopez probation, and restitution was ordered to York as a condition of probation. Therefore, the court had broad discretion to order restitution, and the limits of the penal code do not apply. And now our crime report. According to court records, Tigran Sivagian, M.D., purchased the Southwest Medical Group way back in 1998 from a man ensnared in federal medical fraud investigations. The seller and dozens of other doctors were believed at the time to have overbilled the government for at least $13 million for medical tests and procedures at its offices in Burbank, Ventura, and San Francisco. 
Facing charges of health care fraud, Savagian agreed to go undercover for federal prosecutors. But before he would wear a wire for them, he said he needed to visit his sick mother in Russia. And he never returned from that trip. The day he was supposed to appear in court, prosecutors received paperwork from a Russian morgue stating that he died of pneumonia. His remains were claimed to have been cremated and given to his mother. Ten years later, prosecutors asked a judge to dismiss the charges against him, and they discarded the evidence they had collected. His estate was divided up among creditors, and his wife and children moved on with efforts to rebuild their lives. But unbeknownst to prosecutors, this doctor was not dead. Savagian found a home in the Egyptian town of Harugda and began earning a living as a part-time scuba instructor under another name. He fell in love with a woman from Sochi, Russia, a resort city on the coast of the Black Sea, and had a son in 2012. And things were looking up for him by the end of last year when he expected a second child. But this would be a difficult pregnancy and would require a cesarean procedure at a distant location. So Savagian obtained a new fake passport under a new identity to attend his child's birth, but was stopped by Russian security and sent back to Egypt. Egyptian authorities discovered a canceled American passport of Tigran Savagian when searching his apartment. And now Savagian is sitting in a federal holding cell in downtown Los Angeles, where he faces only a single charge of unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, which carries a maximum five-year sentence, half of what he faced before he vanished. Prosecutors said they expect to reach plea agreements with Savagian by mid-November and will not prosecute him on the old and much more serious medical fraud charges. While Savagian was abroad, the State Department of Health and Human Services sought a judge's order to allow them to take his family's home in a gated Newport Beach neighborhood. But the state gave up its fight in 2005, and a year later his wife divided her ex-husband $63,000 in assets among the family. But the FBI said she managed to empty out a Swiss bank account Savagian maintained with $3 million. The California Department of Insurance Detectives, assisted by multiple law enforcement agencies, arrested Chris Batham and Christian Wallace on multiple felony counts of grand theft and identity theft. The two allegedly conspired to defraud patients and insurers out of more than $176 million through an elaborate conspiracy. Search warrants have now been executed at 15 locations throughout Los Angeles and Orange County. Batham and Wallace's allegedly victimized hundreds of people addicted to drugs and alcohol by keeping them in a never-ending cycle of treatment, addiction, and fraud. Batham was the owner and CEO of Community Recovery of Los Angeles and Wallace the CFO, and they are accused of luring vulnerable people addicted to drugs and alcohol with a variety of marketing schemes. Batham and Wallace also conspired to steal patient identities and buy health insurance policies for patients without their knowledge. After completing treatment, Batham also allegedly continued to bill insurance companies for treatment services. Combined, they billed health insurance companies more than $176 million in fraudulent claims. 
The defrauded insurers include Anthem Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Cigna, HealthNet, and Humana. They paid approximately $44 million before discovering the suspected fraud and stopping payments. Additional charges include enhancements for losses greater than $500,000 and for losses greater than $3.2 million, part of white-collar law. This is likely the first wave of indictments and charges in an ongoing investigation into one of the largest health insurance fraud cases in California. If convicted on all counts, Batham and Wallace face more than 35 years in prison. And Sarah Lord, a former Justice Department attorney, says that the medical device area is particularly susceptible to kickbacks for physicians. This is because there are so many different types of devices and thus more room for physicians' discretionary decisions about whether or not to prescribe or recommend certain devices. And incentives for doctors to use these products, particularly new products, are rarely a direct payment for using a device. Instead, device companies may ask a prominent physician to try their product and then offer to pay them for spreading the word. But physicians and other providers need to ensure that any discounts they receive from a manufacturer or distributor are reflected in the billing. That can require a lot of diligence about what products actually cost at the time they are purchased or ordered for patients. It is not just kickbacks and fraud that take a toll on medical costs. According to a preliminary report by the Office of the Attorney Inspector General, recalls and high failure rates associated with just seven devices recently cost Medicare $1.5 billion dollars and beneficiaries $140 million in out-of-pocket costs. To help prevent fraud, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued guidance this summer warning physicians about kickbacks, billing Medicare for free samples, and sham consulting arrangements that aim to buy product loyalty. The Physician Payments Sunshine Act, part of the Affordable Care Act, requires device, drug, and biologics companies to publicly report all gratuities to physicians and teaching hospitals totaling more than $10. And in regulatory news, back in early 2014, California passed AB 1309, limiting most professional athletes from filing workers' compensation claims within the state. And the fallout was immediate. Players from all over the U.S. filed more than a thousand injury claims at the last minute, hoping to get treatment and compensation before the September 2015 new law deadline. In the first two weeks of September, current and retired players filed 569 claims against NFL franchises, 283 claims against Major League Baseball clubs, 113 against National Hockey League teams, and 79 against NBA squads. And after the September deadline, the NFL players needed to find a new venue for their litigation. And that venue may be the state of Florida. Tony Gator, along with 141 other former NFL players, filed a federal lawsuit in Fort Lauderdale against the league seeking workers' compensation benefits for traumatic brain injury symptoms. The players contend CTE, or 
Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is an occupational hazard of playing football and should be covered under workers' compensation. The lawsuit names nearly 40 former NFL players, including many who have ties to South Florida. Plaintiffs listed in the suit included former Detroit Lions player Cedric Irvin, former Dallas Cowboys player Kevin Harris, former Washington Redskins player Lawrence Jones, former Tampa Bay Buccaneers player Shevin Smith, and former New England Patriots player Santonio Thomas. In April 2015, a federal court approved a $1 billion settlement between the NFL and the players who accused the league of not warning players and hiding the damage of brain injury. Earlier this year, a handful of players rejected the settlement and filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court contending that some future cases would not be compensated. Now this new suit filed in Florida could affect the more than 19,000 retired NFL players who don't qualify for the benefits under the existing NFL federal civil settlement. And these claims could not come at a worse time for Florida. The Florida Office of Insurance Regulation issued an order that will raise workers' compensation rates by 14.5%, affecting new and renewing policies on December 1. This change came in response to a recent judgment regarding personal injury trial lawyers and the fees they can charge in workers' comp cases. Under current state law, attorney fees are paid 20% for the first $5,000 and 15% of the next $5,000 of any benefits they help secure. But in April, the state Supreme Court ruled it was unconstitutional to cap attorney fees. State regulators have filed five safety violations against a Jerupa Valley electrical firm after a rooftop fall severely injured a 29-year-old worker. The accident happened on June 13 while the worker was installing solar panels on a roof in Fontana. The victim fell 29 feet through a skylight, suffering multiple serious injuries. Cal OSHA investigators learned that there was no fall protection at the site, despite the hazards presented by more than 140 skylights on the roof of the building, a rooftop access hatch, and the unguarded edges of the roof. And the employee did not receive any personal protective equipment from his employer. State officials say elite electric managers knew the firm was required to protect employees who approached within six feet of any skylight during the solar panel installation. The protections could have been devices such as guardrails, personal fall protection systems, covers, screens, or nets. Elite actually obtained payment in their contract for these protections, which was evidence that the company management was aware of the need for them. The elite safety manager, however, emphasized that the firm has had a good safety record for 38 years. As a result of this accident, elite said it already has tightened safety inspections and supervision at its job sites. Kalosha chief Julianne Sum said that falling is the leading cause of death in the construction industry. The five workplace safety citations issued to Elite Electric in this case proposed penalties of over $130,000. One of the citations is general, three are serious, and one is willful serious. 
A serious violation is cited when there is a realistic possibility that death or serious harm could result from the actual hazardous condition. A willful violation is cited when the employer is aware of the law and violates it nevertheless, or when the employer is aware of the hazardous condition and takes no reasonable steps to address it. According to estimates from the Survey of Occupational Injuries and Illnesses conducted by the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the California Department of Industrial Relations, over 470,000 non-fatal workplace injuries and illnesses was reported by private and public sector employers in California in 2015. However, California's overall incident rate of non-fatal injuries and illnesses remains unchanged at 3.8 cases per 100 workers for full-time employees. This is the lowest rate in over a decade. There has been a steady decline in injury rates in California now for quite some while. Back in 2002, the rate was six cases per 100 employees for full-time workers. Of the non-fatal reportable job-related injuries and illnesses in 2015, 77% occurred in private industry and 23% in state and local government. Reported days away from work incident rates differed substantially between private sector and government workers. The rate among government workers was approximately twice that for private sector employers. And the report did not speculate as to the reason for this difference in lost time. The days away from work incident rates for California private sector industries remained at one case per 100 workers, equaling the national rate. Occupational injuries are more prevalent and the rate of injuries per 100 higher among males than among females. 60% of the reported cases with days away from work were from male workers with only 40% for females. Compared to 2014, the rates for both working men and women dropped in 2015 in the private sector. In 2015, 28% of reported days away from work injuries in private industry in California occurred among workers with less than a year of tenure. Among private sector workers, the highest number of lost time injuries was caused by overexertion and bodily reaction by contact with an object or piece of equipment and by falls, trips, and slips. Other major causes of lost time injuries and illnesses included exposure to harmful substances or environments, transportation incidents, and workplace violence. And in medical news, a new study shows that it one comes, when it comes to purchasing prescription medications, it really pays to shop around. According to research reported at the American Heart Association Medical Meeting in New Orleans, the cost of generic drugs that treat heart failure can vary wildly, even among pharmacies within the same area. Researchers found that the combined cost for a month's supply of three commonly prescribed generic heart failure drug drugs ranged from $12 to $400. That's for the same drugs, with an average price of about $70 in the greater St. Louis area. About 5.7 million Americans are living with heart failure, according to the American Heart Association. The researchers was prompted by a 25-year-old patient who said he could not afford to fill his prescription for digoxin at $100 for a 30-day supply. 
So the researchers decided to look into the variable cost of supposedly cheaper generic heart failure medicines. A lot of doctors assume that if you're writing a prescription for a generic drug, that it will be affordable. So researchers surveyed 175 pharmacies in the St. Louis area to see how much they charged uninsured customers for digoxin, lisinopril, and carvedilol. The researchers found no apparent link between price and type of pharmacy or the average income in a particular neighborhood. They even found that two major pharmacy chains did not have consistent pricing between their two stores and they could not discover where the major pricing problem lies in the journey that the generic drug for heart failure takes from generic company to distributor to retail pharmacy and then to the patient. There was no transparency in the distribution chain. Uninsured patients typically do not shop around for lower prices. Instead, if the patient finds a drug too expensive, they simply do not fill the prescription. So the authors suggested that this type of study be replicated in other parts of the country and for other medical conditions. The former American Heart Association president who was not involved with this research said the issue affects everyday life of patients that he treats who are on fixed incomes. He said there is no reason why this kind of variability should exist within markets. Workplace injury is one of the main reasons doctors prescribe opioids and dependence has become an expensive problem for those paying workers' comp claims. And according to an analysis by Comp Pharma, workers' compensation payers spend $1.54 billion on opioids in 2015 or 13% of the total U.S. spending on opioid medication. Companies that handle claims for those injuries are now trying new programs that push workers toward alternative pain treatments and that make it harder to get prescriptions for potentially addictive drugs. Workers' compensation professionals are using predictive algorithms and behavioral health screens to assess a claimant's risk for dependency. And hopefully they steer them to alternative treatments such as over-the-counter drugs and mental health counseling in lieu of prescription opioids. Such programs are aimed at preventing abuse rather than treating it after the fact. When an injured worker is first prescribed a drug like fentanyl, Broadspire mails an opioid educational packet to both the patient and the doctor and then tracks the refills. Claims are reviewed after 10 weeks to check whether the patient is still taking opioids. Broadspire then works with a physician to make plans for weaning the patient off the drugs. The company says that in a test of the program, opioid prescriptions fell by 14% compared with the control group. And Travelers has developed an algorithm that analyzes thousands of claims and identifies the likelihood that an injured employee will develop chronic pain. Travelers' medical director said that certain conditions, such as a prior case history of anxiety or depression, increase the chance that a patient will experience chronic pain. Those deemed at risk for chronic pain and addiction receive recommendations for alternative therapies, such as physical therapy and mental health counseling. Traveler says it cannot prevent a physician from prescribing opioids for at-risk patients, but 
It does urge care providers to follow a plan for alternative therapies and can refuse to authorize payment for a painkiller prescription depending upon the state's law. Traveler says its algorithm used in 20,000 cases in the past year has helped reduce individual claim costs by as much as 50%. To some extent, the industry is trying to solve a problem it helped create. According to analysis of 264,000 claims by the Workers' Compensation Research Institute, about 65 to 85% of injured workers received narcotic painkillers under workers' compensation. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.